in verse 13 of John chapter 2, and then on through the end of the chapter at verse 26. The apostle John is writing, and he says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money, the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then the disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. <clears throat> Let us breathe a word of prayer. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that we, your people, illumined by your word, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. John presents to us in his account of the gospel a different kind of introduction. He has a prologue in chapter 1, specifically in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. Now, some uh, biblical students and scholars debate over whether or not that prologue includes all of chapter 1, perhaps, or whether it ends really at verse 18. But the other gospel writers, two of them, present to us a genealogy of Christ and a laying out of his birth. One of them, Mark, he's got no time for that. He just jumps right out into the ministry of Christ. But John offers us a bit of a prologue. He begins uh, with theology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was the light of the world, and he was coming into the world. 
And the world did not receive him. His own people rejected him. But he came to offer life. He's setting the table for us for what he's going to present in what really becomes a different kind of storytelling. John is not so much concerned with the chronology of events, but with laying out the case of who Christ is. And so he offers us seven signs. He offers us seven I am statements that Jesus makes concerning himself. And he's weaving a tapestry that Christ Jesus is the Son of God, the Eternal One, who became man to redeem us. And he ends his gospel telling with kind of another bookend, not a prologue, almost an epilogue, Jesus interacting with Peter after the resurrection. John tells us that these signs and all that he's given in his book are given so that we might have life through believing that Christ is indeed the Messiah. John, as well as the other gospel writers, present to us a different kind of Messiah. A different kind of Messiah than the Jews of his time had been looking for. They were living under Roman tyranny. And they were looking for power and in might. And would overthrow the Romans. And would give Israel back not just their land because they were dwelling in their land. But would get rid of those who were occupying their land. And those who had their thumbs at their backs. They were looking for one who would come and establish a new government of God. But John paints for us a picture, along with the other gospel writers, of one who came not so much concerned about Roman occupation, but how does one live a life even while being occupied? How does one live while being tyrannized? John presents to us a different kind of Jesus than you might have heard of. Today, the popular thing is to speak of Jesus as meek and mild. Jesus was a sweet little innocent man who had an unfair shake from the powers that be, and he humbly took that for us. In fact, one of the more popular writers today, you could debate whether or not he's a Christian or a heretic or what have you, but uh, he says that he says that that weakness is the new strength, and he says the life of Jesus is a life of weakness. It's a life of of one who's so quiet and humble and so meek, and and things just happen unfairly. But he's willing to take that. But that doesn't line up with what you read in the gospel narratives. Here, John tells us that. Jesus storms into a temple and begins causing havoc and chaos. Loudly, not quietly. Powerfully, not meekly. Jesus is cleansing the temple. And John lays it out right at the beginning of his gospel narrative. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they they place it. It's during Holy Week. It's when Christ has entered Jerusalem for that final stand against Satan. And when Christ is, is, uh, uh, is, is betrayed and abandoned, He's taken before Pilate, that's when the cleansing of the temple takes place, during Holy Week. John 
begins his gospel saying, this is the type of Christ who came. This is the type of Messiah who came. This is the one who offers us life in his name. He's the one that cleanses a temple. John presents to us not just a different kind of of introduction or storytelling, not just a different kind of Messiah or Jesus. He helps us to better understand the cross. Our understanding of the cross normally begins with the cross. Jesus humbly lays himself down for our sake. Jesus gives up his life so that we might have life. But we can't fully understand the cross and we can't correctly understand the cross if we divorce the cross from the rest of his life. The mystery of his death is only understood in the unveiling of his life. This was not one who lived meekly and mildly. This is one who got in trouble. This is one who created... This is one who would probably make you and me a bit uncomfortable if we were around him. Think about it. The cleansing of the temple. The, the courtyard where Jesus is cleansing the temple. It's, it's square shaped rather than rectangular, but it's about the size of a football field. This is not Jesus walking into our door here and knocking over our offering plate. This is one who took the time to bind up cords into a whip together as he's fuming in anger. John says that the disciples remembered, oh yeah, the psalmist did say zeal for your house. Passionate fury over your house has driven me. He's binding up cords and he begins screaming and beating the stone ground with those cords. Flipping over tables, knocking down cages filled with birds, screaming, what have you done to my father's house? That'd be a bit awkward to be around. You could say, well, that escalated quickly. You can't fully understand the cross without seeing the unveiling of his life and really the illumination of his resurrection, the resurrection which is the end cap. John goes ahead and gives us a reminder. This is the one who was raised from the dead. And his disciples, they didn't know what he was talking about, but when three days later his body came out of the tomb and they touched his hands and they felt his side, they remembered this one who came to cleanse a temple, he's the one who was raised from the dead. The resurrection is the greatest sign of God's power. Amen. It is the greatest sign of God's strength. The resurrection of the dead is not something that just quietly happens and kind of is ushered off into the, the, the forgottenness of history. It was for Paul the linchpin of our faith. And without it, our faith is vain and futile and silly. Paul says, we should be ashamed and the world would look upon us in shame 
if we believe Christ was raised and he indeed. And without remembering that this is the one who was raised from the dead, Jesus is not so meek and mild as we might first think and as we might popularly hear. Jesus was a troublemaker. He comes to stir things up a bit. Jesus came. Lindsay, will you, you, this thing's going crazy on me. Number one, Jesus came to do something new. It's interesting that John puts the placing, uh, the, the cleansing of the temple right after Jesus' first miracle. Remember, John doesn't refer to these as miracles. They are signs. They are things that Christ did that are pointing us to something beyond themselves. They're pointing us to the reality of who Christ is. Jesus' first miracle was turning the water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's interesting what happens in that story. He's at a wedding with his disciples. His mother, Mary, is there. They run out of wine. That's a going to be a, be a bit embarrassing. Great, we don't have enough provisions for all the guests that we've invited. Now you have to remember that a wedding feast in, in uh, ancient Jewish culture, it lasted for days. They knew how to celebrate. They knew how to make merry. They run out of wine. Mary goes to Jesus and says, Son, do something. And he says, it's, it's not my time yet. And then she goes to the master of the feast and says, do whatever he says. She knows he's going to get involved. Jesus takes ceremonial vessels, stone pots or jars, large ones, that were used for ceremonial cleansing and washing. They're filled with water that hands had been washed in. And he transforms that water into wine. It's interesting that John uses that sign, that miracle as his first sign. Jesus has come to do something new. Jesus has come to bring newness, transformation. Jesus has come to do not just something new, but something better. The, the, the master of the feast, when he's given that wine, he says, what have you guys done? You saved the best for last. Normally you give the best first. And here, we're days into this thing, and now you're breaking out the best? Jesus comes to do something new, something that's going to be better, but also something that's joyous. The occasion of that miracle. The setting of that sign is very telling. He's at a wedding. He's at a cause for celebration. Wine in Jewish culture was a symbol of joy and celebration. You break out champagne on New Year's Eve because you're celebrating newness. Something new is happening. We've got another year ahead, another opportunity to enjoy life. 
And John wants to startle us, so to speak, with that image. This Jesus has come offering newness. He to do something new. He's come to infill us with a new and better and lasting joy. With a reason to celebrate. Jesus came to clean house. Here in Jerusalem, in the cleansing of the temple, we find him literally cleaning house. This is his father's house. This is the house of God. It's to be a place of prayer. It's to be a a place of worship. And Jesus is filled with zeal for his father's house. You remember Paul related the temple of God to our bodies. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus here, he's speaking of the temple, or John here, he's speaking of the temple of the holy city. And reminds us that in speaking of that temple, Jesus was meaning the temple of his body. And our bodies, Paul says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has come to change things. He's come to do something new. He's come to cleanse. And that's the great work of the Holy Spirit. To come into a person's life. To bring the presence of Jesus so that he can us up. He wants to cleanse his house, the church. He wants to cleanse his dwelling place, us, his people. Jesus is patient in his cleansing. Jesus will work with us. Jesus cleanses us slowly but surely. But there are times in which he puts his finger on parts of our, our lives and says, that needs to be clean. That needs to be changed. And even in doing that subtly, we are called to the carpet, so to speak. Things get a bit they must have gotten in the temple. We're at a point of decision, a point of do we agree? Or do we say, no thanks, I'd rather keep that for myself. Jesus has come to clean house. He's come to do something new. He's come. He's come lastly to restore dignity. Now we think of dignity as kind of like a sense of pride. You know, you want to let a man keep a bit of his dignity. You're talking about you want to let him keep a little bit of that ego. A little bit of pride. You want to save him from too much shame. But dignity is restored to us in the sense that 
God wants to remind us and restore to us our value. And it's interesting what John says and what the other gospel writer says about Jesus cleansing the temple. He's doing specifically two things. In addition to the the whip binding and the slapping on the floor and the screaming and yelling, he turns over the tables of the money changers and he drives away those who are selling doves and pigeons. The money changers were those who were like the bank. When you, you know, get off the airport in Europe, you got your U.S. dollars and you got to get some euros or some pounds. The money changers, that was their job. They were making some profit. And as the foreigners were coming in, those aliens from throughout the Roman provinces, as they were coming in, these money changers found opportunity for life. Jesus is looking out for and protecting the aliens among his people. He's driving away those who are selling doves and pigeons. In the Old Testament, in in the, the books of the law, God made provision for the poorest of the poor. If they could not afford a normal sacrifice, they were offered the opportunity to, to, to give to God a sacrifice of a dove or a pigeon. And Jesus, in storming into this temple, and in turning over these tables, in driving away these salesmen who have inhabited his father's house, He is restoring the dignity of the most vulnerable among the Jewish people. These are people made in God's image. These are people for whom Christ will die. And Jesus is reminding His people and He is restoring to these aliens and to these poor among them the dignity of being created in God's image. He restores to us the dignity of those who are lost. Those who are on the outside. And you and I were once there. It's Peter who says in his new te- one of his New Testament epistles, you were once not a people, but God's made you a people. He's brought you in. Paul says you were on the outside, just like everyone else, living like the world, doing your own thing, following after what came naturally. And God has brought you near. He's drawn you through His Son, Jesus God wants His people to be people of be people who offer to the world life because we were once part of the world and He gave us life. And He's infuriated when He looks at His church and sees that that's not happening. That instead... They found themselves seeing the world as their enemy 
the world being the people to whom they're to offer life and light. The problem with these money changers and the problem with these who sold doves and pigeons, John even throws in the oxen. The problem with them is that they saw the lost world. They saw the poor. They saw the alien as those to be exploited. Those to be used for gain. Those who were weaker and vulnerable and therefore those who could be used. They saw others made in God's image as commodities to be traded and sold and purchased. The problem that we as the modern church often find ourselves dealing with is that we see the world maybe not as something to be used, as people to be used, but we see them as not people who God has made in His image, not as people for whom Christ has died, but as the enemy. They're to be beaten. They're to be wiped out. Not there to be engaged and transformed and brought in. They're them, not us. I think Peter you once were not us. I once was not us. It is by God's grace that life and light has come into my life and given me light so that I can be us. Jesus came to do something new, to clean house, and to restore dignity. Those who are without. To restore those who are outside. To draw men and women boys and girls, into the fellowship and the family of His kingdom. So He's counting on you and me to be people who offer light to the world, to be people who give of ourselves so that others might find life in Christ. And this morning as we as we come to the end of our time together, I wonder what it is that God is saying to you and to me. I think it would be helpful if we spent a few moments in silence. It's asking God, Lord, what is it what is it that you're saying to me? What is it that I need to perhaps give? What part of my heart, what part of my life is it that I need to surrender to you? What is it, Lord, that I have either done as a hindrance or neglected? Our
our prayer ultimately should be, Lord, come and cleanse this temple. Put your light in me. Fill me with your life so that others might know you and so that others might find your son Jesus and be found by him. Let's spend just a a few moments in silent prayer and then we will pray and our band will lead us in a final song.